Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Would you like to combat daily stressors and live your life to its fullest? Well, in the newly revised Rewire Your Brain 2.0, Five Healthy Factors to a Better Life, distinguished psychologist Dr. John Arden delivers an essential discussion of how to apply the latest developments in neuroscience, epigenetics, and immunology to help improve your mood, memory, relationships, and longevity. You'll learn how to overcome mild depression and anxiety, procrastination, burnout, compassion fatigue, and a variety of other negative thought patterns. You'll also find practical self-help tips based on well-researched principles that are proven to work in the real world ways to minimize the impact of everyday anxiety, stress, and depression, and live your life to its fullest, and tactics for improving your memory for day-to-day tasks at work and at home. This book is a practical and hands-on roadmap to applying new advances in neuroscience, psychology, gene expression, and immune system research to the everyday problems we all face. Rewire Your Brain 2.0 deserves a place on the bookshelves of professionals, athletes, parents, and anyone else susceptible to the stressors of daily life. Dr. John Arden has over 40 years of experience providing psychological services and directing mental health programs. His study of neuropsychology inspired him to integrate neuroscience and psychotherapy, synthesizing the biological and psychological into a new vision for psychotherapy called brain-based therapy. His work incorporates what is currently known about the brain and its capacities, including neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. With psychotherapy research, mindfulness, Nutritional Neuroscience and Social Intelligence. Dr. Arden is the author of 16 books, 
translated into over 20 languages and has presented seminars in over 30 countries and in every U.S. state. For more information, please visit his website at drjohnarden.com. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Elizabeth Cronin, a host for the New Books Network, and today I'm talking with Dr. John Arden about his book, Rewire Your Brain 2.0. Thank you for being here today. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you. So I'm excited to talk to you because I'm so passionate about the way that you approach this book and incorporate all the latest discoveries in terms of like brain science, the things that we're learning, and also the necessity for the basics, how it, no matter what new information we have, it we kind of always come back to those certain things we have to do to take care of our body, to take care of our brain. Before we get into all that, that's just a precursor for why I'm so excited. I would love to start by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got so interested in the brain, your experience in the fields of psychology, and whatever else you want to share with us. Sure. Um, let me let me uh, start off by saying that actually, when I became a psychologist, I really wasn't marinated in the research about the brain. Uh, you know, like you, we we both went through uh, various types of graduate schools and and got these graduate degrees and and so on. Mine uh, uh, didn't include in any rigorous way uh, any information on the brain. I took the basics and and so on. It was only later. Uh, that after I became a licensed psychologist, and at that point back in the mid 80s, I realized I just didn't know enough about why these uh, theories were either right or wrong. And, and uh, uh, you and I know quite well that uh, many of our colleagues have been running on some theories that didn't really pan out <laughs> very well. And I wanted a much broader perspective as to why uh, some things work, you know, when we're dealing, helping clients become less anxious uh, or less depressed. I wanted to understand in a deeper way. Uh, I'm not a reductionist at all. In fact, I started like you, uh, a practitioner in meditation and yoga before the sun came up. And in fact, there was even a ashram next door to, to where I was going to college and I would go sit and, you know, meditate and do yoga before I would go off to college. And, and, you know, I'm still the same guy, but I also want to understand what that's all about as well. Uh, so I got, uh, you could say, um, initiated in the psychodynamic theories and became a hypnotherapist in the Ericksonian hypnotherapy world and all that. And then later became a um, a uh, community mental health uh, director type person running um, uh, programs like day treatment programs, residential programs in, in counties like Napa County, where I was. Uh, uh, and still, I thought I didn't know enough. Well, you know, frankly, Elizabeth, I still don't think that. <laughs> and that's a motivator for me. And I'm, I'm not just saying that. Uh, when I discover how little I know, that's a motivator to know more. And I, I think we're just scratching the surface of so much. Um, so though this one book, Rewire Your Brain, sounds kind of lofty and, and, you know, like, oh, we know exactly what to do, uh, it's really the beginning of, uh, of a renaissance, you could say, of knowledge. So when you say that you were kind of curious about 
the theories that didn't seem to be panning out and wanting to understand what did work. It's funny because I can relate. I mean, I just remember being in my late teens and having therapy for the first time and over the course of a year feeling like, oh, okay, something has changed. I feel better and having no idea what it was and then not having therapy again for a while and then starting up again and thinking, I'm going to get a notebook and write things down. Like I got I really always wanted to figure out how, how were things changing? And so I'm just wondering if you had, if there's something more specific that, that propelled you into, maybe it was the community mental health work or how, what really brought you into like, cause you know, so much about the brain. Well, I actually, I, I know more than I did before, <laughs> but there's so much more to, to learn. But let's go back to the community mental health uh, experience that I had uh, back in the, actually in the 70s in San Francisco. And we were part of, I was part of uh, this larger movement of helping people that were pretty um, maladaptive to living out in the community. I mean, many of them uh, were experiencing severe depression, some psychotic symptoms, you know, hearing voices and so on. Uh, had all these heavy diagnoses, uh, you know, like schizophrenia and major depression and bipolar and so on. And we were um, trying to uh, deinstitutionalize many of the people that got um, released from the long-term uh, let me just put it in, in uh, kind of inflammatory terms, long-term psychiatric incarceration, <laughs> uh, meaning that uh, I really felt, and I did my dissertation on this, that, that uh, long-term hospitalization infantilizes people. It doesn't help anybody. Uh, it, it, well, I mean, it helps them from killing themselves because they're monitoring themselves and so on. But people still need to learn how to live out in the community. And so um, many of the programs that I was involved setting up and, and through that period, that 15 year period from let's say 1975 until about 1990 uh, were to help people kind of go through this process of learning how to live in the community. And so I was on the residential side, then the day treatment side, and then ran a bunch of programs uh, for uh, not only helping them learn how to cook for themselves and, and clean up the house and all that, but actually teach them how to work in the community with real jobs. And many of them back then were getting um, uh, paychecks, essentially, for being crazy. I mean, that sounds pretty bad, but, you know, your, your job title is paranoid schizophrenia or, or bipolar or whatever. And uh, that uh, kind of kept them in a dependent zone. And one of the programs on the day side actually taught them how to work in real jobs and place them in real jobs out in the community. And we said such things as, you know, you could still hear your voices and flip the hamburgers. At least you're going to get a paycheck. And you feel better about yourself. And so these programs, unfortunately, became uh, somewhat well-known, not because of me, but because of what we're doing nationally in these various programs, some of which were uh, developed in Boston, where you are. Um, and so this, this concept of psychosocial rehabilitation really uh, hit home with me, you know, that, okay, so you could have a whole variety of different types of problems, anxiety, depression, and so on, but still you can learn to live out in the community. In fact, if you get more engaged in the community the, and have better relationships, you'll feel better about yourself and the relationships that you have. 
Uh, in fact, during this process, there's this funny story. If I, I, you might be tickled by this because uh, because you're a psychologist as well. Um, I went to a meeting, uh, 1978, San Francisco at the San Francisco Psychoanalytic Institute, and you know these were all these major figures like Eric Erickson was there. And the control mastery people were there. And uh, Otto Frank, I think his name, I forgot that, you know, this is 1978. And one of our clients who lived in one of the houses that we ran in San Francisco uh, went to their day treatment program. And uh, in that uh, case conference, it was it was rather funny, if, if I could tell this story, because I think it is humorous. Um, my colleague and I uh, arrived early. And there, if you can imagine this scene where there are three couches in the middle and a whole bunch, maybe 100 chairs sitting around the three, three couches that are uh, facing a lectern. And so we arrived early. We sat down on one of the couches, and a woman came out and said, you can't sit there. That's where Professor Erickson is, is sitting. And I said, oh, my God, Milton Erickson. This is incredible. I really always wanted to be Milton Erickson. And she said, no, 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 not Milton Erickson, Eric Erickson. I said, are you kidding me? He's still alive. This guy knew Freud. This is amazing. And so she shooed us out to one of the seats in the periphery. And sure enough, uh, all the postdocs and the psychiatrists and psychologists started showing up and were filling up the, the, um, the whole room. And then later, uh, the dignitaries, including Eric Erickson, came out. And uh, one of uh, uh, the people stood up and he said, I'm going to go get our patient. So he walked out of the room, brought in our so-called common patient, and uh, uh, he was being interviewed in front of all these people, you know, and we were just watching this interview and I was actually following all the, the drama here uh, because of the questioning. I was, I was I already had one of my graduate degrees, you know, I was very steeped in psychoanalytic and psychodynamic theory and all that. And so I knew where they were going with all this developmental and attachment um, uh, information, which I still really like. Um, and then they uh, said to the, the client, um, well, thank you. And he says, no, you don't want more? I, you know, I could stay a little longer. No, 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 that's fine, that's fine. So they ushered him off. You know, he really wanted to stand there a little bit longer, maybe another hour or something. And then they, they went off into this really arcane psychoanalytic discussion about, you know, uh, um, various um, almost uh, object relations theory type of uh, uh, mumbo jumbo about split off self objects and and so on and so forth, and then they finally turned to us and said, "Well, how is he doing over there in that progress uh, place?" And the director, who I was sitting with, said, "Oh, he's doing really good, and you know, he's getting along with people and all that." What do you think, John? Well, he said what I was going to say, which was basically just being polite. Then I thought, I'm having a panic attack. And here a hundred people are listening to me have a panic attack. And I'm I'm thinking, I'm gonna make a fool out of myself saying the stuff I don't really even believe. I said, Well, look, the reality is he's stagnating in your program. You wanna keep him for another year just to sit around and talk about his family. He's 23 years old. He needs to get out into the community. And there was a hush. In fact, somebody was going to, you know, grab me by the back of my shirt, usher me out. You know, I look like some San Francisco guy, you know, with a little long hair and a beard and all that. And uh, 
uh, everybody was hushed up and I, I was feeling like, oh my God, I'm getting kicked out of this. This is the end of the career in psychology. Eric Erickson cleared his voice and said, young man, you have a point. We can't keep him for another year. He needs to learn how to live out in the community. That story for me, I, you know, of course, I'm probably embellishing it because I probably made more of a fool out of myself than I'm describing here. But the bottom line is our job, I think, is to help people. And I know you're agreeing because we talked about this before we even began the, the interview here is to help people learn how to live out in the community and have decent jobs and uh, have good relationships. And, you know, we're, none of us are perfect and that's not what we're looking for. You know, we're not gonna turn into Christ or Buddha tomorrow, you know, but we could be more loving. We could be more adaptive. We don't have to suffer as much by depression and anxiety doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So I became much more fascinated with how we could teach people that aren't, aren't as debilitated as those people I was dealing with or helping back in the 70s and 80s, because I started working at this large HMO in um, San Francisco and Northern California. And they were the clients were us, <laughs> basically workers out there that had health insurance. And um, uh, so I started uh, studying neuroscience because I thought, well, maybe if I help people learn a little bit more about the brain, in including myself, because I was also doing neuropsychological evaluations and all that, uh, then I could bring all this science down to earth so people could make use of it. So I think that's where we're at, that our job is to help people have a better life and not to treat them in a um, pedantic sort of way by throwing around big terms and all that, but rather bring things down to earth. And, and if we can come up with mnemonics that they'll remember, <laughs> cool, that's a good thing. Yeah, it definitely helps. And in the book, I love that you use, you know, feed and seeds and lots of stuff like that. But be before you get into maybe that, and before I ask you about that, what, what do you think in general makes it so hard for us to really learn to, to live and not just live for survival, but to like live our best life? Well, you know, in many ways, a lot of people have very unfortunate early experiences. So I'm not laying everything on early unfortunate experiences, but in the system I used to work in, the Kaiser Permanente system, we did this very large study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study that's now done across the world, across the world. And what it looked at was categories of unfortunate early experiences, like did you grow up in a family with child abuse or domestic violence or somebody who's involved in the criminal justice system or something? It turns out that a lot of these people have multiple problems, not only what we regard as psychological problems like anxiety, depression, and all that, but also had diabetes and, and obesity and a number of other metabolic problems and all that. And so what we, uh, I think, need to uh, learn, I think, uh, is that the mind is connected to the body because it's part of the brain, you know, what the brain does. And so early experiences can be debilitating. But you know what? A lot of people that have early experiences that are debilitating turn out to be the most amazing people around. And so I grew up in a, in a family um, uh, 
born where you are in Boston. Uh, and uh, my relatives were Armenian and they went through this terrible genocide. And I heard about all these just disgusting, terrible things that happened to my own family members. You know, uh, I mean, lying under dead bodies and watching your child murdered in front of you, all this kind of terrible stuff. And I was fascinated with how, why some people survive that and learn to help other people like Viktor Frankl, you know, one of the famous guys in our field, and why some people never recover. And currently, I'm, I'm uh, uh, almost daily involved uh, uh, with um, many of my colleagues in Ukraine, uh, and was there before uh, giving some talks and have been giving talks on trauma and, and so on, and we'll do another one uh, next week. Um, and so uh, I... Uh, feel kind of a responsibility to give back and become more knowledgeable about how people that have had these really disgusting experiences. I was helping in the Afghans, uh, uh, government service workers be right before the Taliban took over uh, earlier. It was in the Middle East, helping the uh, aid workers of the Syrian refugees and so on. So I've been very fortunate to kind of buzz around the world and help in these various uh, uh, areas. Uh, so they, meaning the people that have these really traumatic experiences, also need to learn how to re, uh, reconfigure themselves, so to speak. And re, uh, we have this term that we banter around all the time, and that's resiliency and, and bouncing back and, and whatever. But um, uh, I just don't want people to feel that they're broken for life. <laughs> You know, I had this terrible, disgusting experience and I'm wounded for life. I'm never going to be the same. Well, that, that's true. They're never going to be the same, but you don't have to be feeling like you're debilitated for the rest of your life. Right. I think one of the um, exciting things that you definitely address in the book, too, is just the discovery of how of neuroplasticity and how how much the brain is adapting all the time, you know, to what to what it's currently experiencing. And as I was listening to you talk about um, trauma and what people go through and, and how what affects whether or not they survive or, or possibly thrive. And I was thinking of some of what you talk about there about relationships and sort of the, really the, the role of relationships in brain health, but also in the quality of your life. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned earlier this mnemonic, and then I brought it up again, and that's seeds, planting seeds, cultivating seeds over a lifetime. These five healthy factors that help us uh, develop a foundation to build upon. Basically, if you don't practice these five healthy factors on a regular basis, your life isn't going to be that great. You're not going to live as long. You're going to get more ill and all that down to gene expression level. So you mentioned social, for example. And one of the more exciting areas of um, our field, psychology, and especially attachment and early development, um, took place um, uh, through research up at McGill University in Montreal, where Michael Meany and some other uh, people were uh, demonstrating how early good nurturing resulted in a better thermostat for stress later. Well, let me see if I can bring that down to earth and, but at the same time, throw in some complex genetics here. So I, it, even before I say this, it's not like you're, uh, 
because you can turn on and off genes, you're not going to become a butterfly and fly off or a bird or something like that. I mean, you know, we're human beings. We're not going to become uh, some other creature and there are limitations and all that. However, uh, we can, by lifestyle, turn on and off genes uh, to help us adapt better. I mean, that's our genes are basically just um, recipes to make proteins. That's all they are. They aren't uh, there to there's no gene for depression and anxiety. And, you know, you're you're um, craving for the color purple or something. Um, they're basically just recipes that your body uses to make proteins to build itself. Uh, and replenish itself on a regular basis. And Michael Maney and others found that early nurturing helped make these proteins that heck, act like thermostats in areas of your brain that turn off stress when it gets too intense. Uh, and and let, let me just throw in some of the scientific terminology. There's some, some um, many of your listeners are probably familiar with the so-called hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It's the neural... Uh, endocrine system. Basically, it's one of the many uh, systems that help us kind of rise to this challenge. So there's this area called the hypothalamus that releases this chemical called CRH that hits the pituitary, that releases ACTH, and then cortisol gets developed, uh, turned on if your stress uh, level continues. However, what if you've got this little these little receptors in particular areas of your brain that help you turn off the cortisol volume, let's say, if it gets too high, let's say, for example, you drive in through the, what is it, the big dig or something <laughs> in Boston and the traffic is intense and, and all that. And oh, you're trying to get to work and you're all frazzled. Well, maybe if you have a better thermostat, you won't be frazzled. You just listen to a book on tape or music. And by the time you get to work, you go, ah, traffic was bad. But some people are better able to handle nuisance type stress like that. Some people get really frazzled by traffic, let's say. Uh, and it's that thermostat that's really interesting. And there's an epigenetic effect because early nurturing can turn on that. And so one of the heroes in our field, John Bowlby, who was a developmental psychoanalytic um, theorist, uh, theorized that good, secure attachment resulting in a better thermostat. Well, I just described the thermostat, but there's more to it, of course. So one of the five healthy factors is social, having good relationships and cultivating those relationships where we mutually take care of one another, that we care about one another and, and uh, enjoy a common experience of compassion and love, if, if you want to use that term. Um, and, um, I believe, uh, that actually one of the, the most powerful, um, teachings of all the great theologies is compassion. Uh, and well, sure enough, it works pretty well <laughs> when you experience, uh, compassion and love with, uh, another person, it's a powerful, uh, um, stress reliever. Doesn't mean that's the only thing though. You don't want to just sit around, okay, all I need is love, you know, like the Beatles song. Well, no, I think you need more than that. <laughs> and It's interesting, though, because it makes me think of your effort to advocate for people that were in long-term situations for mental health reasons. 
by getting them out into the world again and teaching them, you know, to learn to live, it, it just reminds me of, you know, when I was in a hospital setting, one of the things in the discharge plan that would be put in place is a volunteer experience for someone, if not work. Because what you're saying is like, to, we need to be able to experience a sense of people, you know, appreciating our work, you know, gratitude and, and forgiveness and compassion. And that's exciting too, all the, all the new discoveries about how powerful those components are to affecting your brain health. Absolutely. If you can um, experience um, uh, compassion for another person and give, for example, if you're depressed and you go to the soup kitchen and on Thanksgiving, instead of having a nice big Thanksgiving dinner at home, maybe you go there first and you're scooping out the food and all that. That's a, that's an antidepressant. You're doing things for other people. So Elizabeth, you and I are in this really, really lucky profession. We help people for a living and get paid for it. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Uh, it, and as long as you do it selflessly, in other words, you, when you can be um, generous without getting credit for it, that's what we're talking about. Um, in fact, let me use um, uh, an example of a friend of mine. I, I um, uh, Rob Garrett, who used to run the New England Foundation, you know, all those Cape Cod seminars that have most recently been uh, taken over by BU and a lot of really good people there as well. So I used to be one of their speakers in BU too. And Rob, uh, like myself, uh, was raised by a very, very uh, generous person. Uh, for me, my father was the most generous person. For him, his father was the most generous person he ever lived. And he uh, said, I love this story. I uh, hope if he's listening, he, he would enjoy it as well. That uh, So he would go to his employees' houses and buy gifts for them, put it on their front step, and ring the doorbell and run across the street behind the bu bushes. Uh, so he would be buying them presents, but not getting credit for the presents. What a beautiful thing. Because if you could do that without getting the credit, oh, you're so generous. Thank you so much for buying me. The no, if you could do stuff for people and not get credit, that's, that's so much better generosity in my mind. And you get credit inside your own mind. You don't think, oh, my, I'm such an amazing person. No, that's not what it's all about. It's about your life is bigger than you and your personal little petty world, so to speak. Yeah, I think that what's interesting about that and my, my growing understanding about sort of the latest in neuroscience is that it's a lot of times what helps our brain health isn't about getting smarter or developing tricks to think more cleverly. It's really about some of the choices we make about how we spend our time and um, how we interact with, with other people, right? Yeah. And so these relationships, let's face it, we're a species that's incredibly social. And people that are isolated actually die sooner uh, areas of their brain literally shrink, like this area that you and I always exercise called the temporal parietal junction on the right side that gives us the capacity for cognitive empathy. It shrinks with loneliness. 
and you know there's all these other epigenetic and immune system problems and one of the uh if i could just say this really quickly and we'll get into uh, other uh, aspects of it but one of the fascinating areas of science that i've always been fascinated with especially um since the mid 80s really is the area called psychoneuroimmunology oh that's a big fancy term for the interaction between your mind and the brain and the immune system and it turns out that uh your immune system has huge effects on the way your brain operates because you have an immune system in your brain. For example, if you have chronic inflammation in your gut, you're going to have chronic inflammation in your, in your brain. And if you do, the chances are you're going to get depressed because one of the prevailing theories for depression is chronic inflammation. And so what do we do about chronic inflammation? Let me, let me add in another seeds element here. Um, the first E of seeds is exercise. If you don't exercise on a daily basis, you're literally uh, impairing your body and your brain. I mean, we evolved as hunter gatherers. We move roughly 10 miles a day. And it wasn't until about 11,000 years ago that we started hanging around one another in one location and developing agriculture and all that. Still, we were exercising because we were pulling things and everything else. But who moves 10 miles a day unless you're in a car? You know, really. Uh, and that's a problem. And so exercise does all these fundamentally important things like lower level any potential chronic inflammation actually result in new neurons in in an area uh, called the hippocampus fancy uh, term for the, the librarian in your brain that lays down new memories and all that um, and it is the best antidepressant that we have the best anxiolytic that we have um, and later we could talk about the fool's gold for some of the uh, psychotropic medications but uh, let me just bring in uh, the, the group that we were working with back in the 70s in san francisco one of the things that i remember doing on a yearly basis was taking this group to Yosemite to go hiking. And we would kind of a couple times try to get up the back of Half Dome, you know, not the face, of course, but the back, you can kind of climb up and, and so on. And uh, exercise is a must. You've got to do it or you have major brain <laughs> impairments. Well, not just your brain, your entire body. Uh, and let me just uh, use... Um, uh, somebody that I regard as a pretty amazingly bright person that um, is still in hospice right now as we talk, Jimmy Carter. Uh, let's forget the presidency and all that. He was for the best, from my point of view, one of the best ex-presidents we've ever done. He could have been playing golf or something, but he ran around the world doing all sorts of cool things. And then I was listening to interviews throughout, even into his early 90s. The guy is so intelligent. And so when he said at one point, you know, I do 100 push-ups a day, I thought he's so much smarter than me. I better do 200. <laughs> and so I have to do that you know, just to catch up to those guys, you know, and do all these other kinds of things. So exercise, fundamentally important. Now, the second E is education. If you're not learning on a regular basis, you're not building new connections between 
neurons and you mentioned neuroplasticity and basically that's what it's all about learning is about making new connections uh and anything you learn that means lifestyle tennis swing you know even how to be depressed <laughs> or how not to be depressed is all about wiring your brain uh so to speak and so why not keep on learning because you build this infrastructure. And so we know that people that live longer without the symptoms of depression may even have plaques and tangles in their brain later on. And we do an autopsy on them. If they were constantly learning, they don't succumb to the symptoms that we talk about when we describe various types of dementia. Uh, and so if you're building more of a, a, let's say, infrastructure, the more you could lose without looking like you lost much. In other words, you have a bigger bench. And that's what learning is all about. Uh, so learning, you don't have to have all the fancy degrees and all that. You could be self-educated or learning new things like how to play a violin and another language and um, whatever. But if you, if you learn things, and this is uh, the most am uh, amazing part of this from my point of view, if you learn things that you're not totally interested in and it takes a whole lot of energy to learn, like, God, I don't know if I really want to learn this. Like for me, learning about genetics, I knew nothing about genetics or all these other things, even neuroscience until the late 80s. But I, I just you know, force myself to, and, and after a while, the more you do it, the more you crave it. So the, it's like a, uh, a process of hunger that you're developing a craving for over a period of time. Uh, so learning is critically important. Uh, no matter where you are, even if you're in uh, Eastern Ukraine right now, uh, uh, learning how to adapt in a dire situation is a good thing. Can I mention the, uh, the, the next two letters of seeds? Okay, uh, diet is fundamentally important. We've learned this the hard way because right now in the United States um, and, and some, some, of the, uh, some other countries, we lead the world in obesity right now, uh, partly because our diet's so bad and we don't move much. I, I, I'm saying partly, it's not the only reason. Uh, and it turns out that not only do fat cells leach out pro-inflammatory cytokines causing chronic inflammation and all that, literally causing your brain to shrink, the hippocampus, for example, that I was describing earlier, uh, but also you can develop uh, all these now lifestyle diseases that we're number two in, diabetes type two. And so if you wanna have diabetes of the brain, sometimes neurologists call it diabetes type three, Alzheimer's disease, eat a lot of simple carbohydrates and, and fried foods <laughs> and don't move much and you're on the express path. And so what do we do? Well, we need to pay attention to the literature related to neuro, uh, nutritional neuroscience or uh, um, pay attention to nutritionists uh, who suggest that we want to have sort of a diet that's similar to the Mediterranean Okinawan diet. You know, another one's called the MIND diet. That's a, sort of a, a, a combination with the DASH uh, diet in their meaning, essence, uh, essentially fruits and vegetables, complex carbohydrates, uh, and not as much protein, but protein, but in a non-saturated fat level. 
Uh, and that's as simple as you can, you know, get, you don't have to, you can get more into it. And I describe it in the book and everything else, but you don't need to get into it. Just think Mediterranean, Okinawan diet, just try to get simple carbohydrates out of your uh, system, meaning um, basically uh, white flour, sugar, you know, the things that have been stripped of the nutrients. Packaged foods. Oh yeah. Processed foods. Terrible. Uh, finally, last um, of the seeds is sleep. Now, many people think of sleep as one thing. No, there's a sleep architecture. And if you don't go through this sleep architecture, healthy, clean sleep, then you don't clear out all the met metabolites that build up over the day. And so we need to provide uh, people with uh, what we call sleep hygiene suggestions. In other words, how to get good quality sleep without pharmacological agents. And many people are using those right now because our, our healthcare system is just run by uh, the cartels, essentially. I, I call the pharm pharmacology um, sector of our society, the cartels, convincing people that a pill is the best way to go. And it turns out that if you take sleeping medications, whether they're over-the-counter like Benadryl-like substances or the garbage of our healthcare system, um, uh, the benzodiazepines, uh, and so on, you're clogging up this process called the glyphamic system that literally during slow-wave sleep clears out all the metabolites like beta amyloid and tau protein and all that. You need to do that. And if you don't, the World Health Organization had found, uh, you know, when they do a study, they do a big population studies, like over 200,000 people. People taking Benadryl-like substances over a long period of time are more likely to develop dementia later on. So clean sleep is really what we need. And there are a lot of suggestions that we as the healthcare providers ought to be given uh, people uh, around how to uh, um, accomplish clean sleep. Uh, and they include a whole bunch of range of different things, like not looking at a computer screen late at night because it tricks your brain into thinking it's daytime through your retina and your pineal gland and so on. Um, so anyway, those five healthy factors are, I think, fundamentally important. They're the foundation for all the other levels of thinking. And you mentioned a few of them, like gratitude and forgiveness and all, all that. You can't get to that level if you're undermining your foundation, like building a house on a on windswept uh, beach, <laughs> you know, that's going to get hur hurricanes through. Uh, you need a good foundation. So thinking, thinking about that, I'm going to, let me just put this out there and then give you a minute to think about it. it could you go back through the seeds and with each of those categories, just like make one suggestion someone could do, like socially, like make sure that you get out of the house and or whatever, just a little like a little tidbit for somebody who was going to try one thing from each category, one small step. I was going to ask you about that. But the the reason why I'm asking that is because it's, it's also clear to me that you, you talk about how we can't really make changes to our brain. We can't rewire the brain. We can't really change our habits. We can't do much without being able to fully harness the energy required, right? And so, and I think that's what I took away from the book is that, you know, the seeds, practicing all of those things are going to help to give you, I mean, I, there's times when if I'm having a, a down day for some reason, yeah, I just don't have energy for anything. And so you do give lots of tips, like in the exercise department, the one thing that stood out to me in your book was that 
exercising in the afternoon or the early evening. So it's not just, I mean, you know, I'm hoping people will be very interested in the book because it's full of very specific suggestions and lots of things people can try. Um, but I wanted to just throw that out there. If someone was listening, if you could break it down into like the seeds, how, how these, each of these areas kind of help with energy and what could someone do to just start small? Sure. So you mentioned, um, uh, you were actually implying um, what my chapter two is, is about, and, and that's about metabolism and, and uh, the mitochondria that you could just call mitos. So let me talk about that first in terms of how we make energy, then we'll go through the seeds. And so uh, one of the, uh, I think, um, fascinating uh, discoveries over the last 30 years is, is a better, um, well, we could just say illumination of our understanding of metabolism. So uh, let's back up uh, for a second and um, understand that every one of our cells needs energy to uh, thrive. How do we get energy? Well, in every one of our cells, we have these little energy factories called mitochondria. Well, that's a big fancy term. Let's just call them mitos because they're mighty. <laughs> and without mitos, you can't produce the fundamental biological energy called ATP. You could just think of ATP as all that power. <laughs> okay, so you got mitos and you got all that power. And it turns out that we're, many people in our country, because of the lifestyle problems that we have, are blowing out their mitos. Why are they doing that? They're feeding them. Well, first of all, let me tell you how mitos run. You get oxygen and the nutrients from what you eat that the mitos use in their little uh, electron transport chains and the Krebs cycle and all that, a lot of complex stuff in there. But generally speaking, the mitos have these little cavities in there that if you get the right balance of those nutrients coming in, including breaking down to glucose and glycogen and all that coming in, then you can produce all that power going out. But if you don't have a good diet, with the feeding the mitos, you're not gonna get all that power on the outside. Plus, you've gotta use the all that power or you're gonna have a dam break. So a lot of people use a, a hydro, hydroelectric dam as an example of how mitos work. And so you can spring leaks. And when you spring leaks, what do we call those? Free radicals, these electrons that pop out and kind of make you age quicker. You could look at a person and see that they're eating a lot of simple carbohydrates and not moving much just by looking at them in, in many ways because they've got all this free radical damage. And that's one of the prevailing theories of depression and anxiety and certainly aging, by the way. So, um, so back to how the mitos work. You've got to use it or lose it is what it comes down to. You got to make the all that power from your mitos and then you got to use it. Well, how do you use it then? You behave in foundationally healthy ways, the seeds way. So then your earlier question was come up with some practical examples of how you can, you know, so do social exercise and so on. Um, well, you know, a lot of people, uh, don't have as many um, the robust, good quality social relationships uh, because it's kind of, let's face it, it's kind of hard uh, to just go out and make a bunch of friendships. And, you know, COVID even made it even worse. 
because you know we were doing this so-called social distancing and one a good friend of mine said don't call it social distancing call it physical distancing <laughs> and so okay so let's say you're not that gregarious you're not that um you're not a person that's going to go down to the cafe and sit around and talk to people out of the blue and all that well Many people need some kind of structured uh, club or behavior or volunteer work or something like that, where you're doing something else. And on the side, you get to develop, it's like a side effect, which is a good side effect. You develop a relationship that's, oh, you're doing this over here, this, you know, uh, volunteer work or whatever it might have been. Uh, but you develop some friendships. And let's face it, a lot of people have friends that spin off from work. So structured behaviors might be a class taking, a, you know, class at the local junior college or adult school or, or painting class or whatever. You're all doing there in a, some kind of structured situation. Okay, so let's move to exercise. Well, you got to use any opportunity you have. For me, I'm, I'm up on a ridge uh, and to get to my mailbox, I do a, a mile and three quarters walk, but it's also down 400 feet in elevation. So almost a, th a thousand. So I, that's a mile and three quarters. That's my minimal hit a day. But I mentioned I'm trying to catch up to Jimmy Carter who never will. So I'm doing that as well. <laughs> and so I, I say to myself, those are like staples. Now, am I impeccable at doing that all the time? No, I can get distracted, things happen, all that kind of stuff. But you go to the supermarket and don't park as close to the market as you can to minimize your walk. That for the really, uh, you know, super old people or, you know, people that, that have some disabilities that need to get there. Because sometimes all those handicapped spots are taken. I mean, park way out there. So at least get a hundred yards and then you're walking around. So you use, you have a stairway and an elevator, take the stairway. So you always use any opportunity to move your body because if you don't think of your body as wasting away. So exercise doesn't have to be, you know, going to a fancy gym and jumping around and, you know, listening to some bombarding music and looking at other people and feeling self-conscious. <laughs> you could just walk. It's the easiest and cheapest thing you could possibly do. Okay. Education. Um, look, human beings are curious people. Let's just even look at the entertainment industry, for example, just to drive home the point. If you already know the end of the movie, are you going to watch the movie? You might. You might be interested in how they construct it and all that. But most people like suspense. Most people like to uh, find out what happens, who done it. Let's say it's a mystery or, or whatever. And in fact, it's really good for your brain because there's this, it, this is feedback system bef between this one area of your brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a fancy way of saying top to the side, and your hippocampus. We remember the Liberian. So and you get this charge of dopamine by go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Wow, I didn't know that. So if you push yourself to find out stuff that you never thought about, you never thought you would know, simply because now we have more ways of knowing than ever before. And, that, you know, using these things isn't all bad. I mean, you could Google and wonder, oh, my God, what is that all about? Uh, so you can, oh. And so just constantly learning gives you that charge of uh, 
uh, kind of a burst of, of anticipation and so on. So, okay, so that's the education. Let's go to diet. Most people eat what they call comfort food because they find it comforting, but it's bad habit. And so in some of the talks that I've done in the, in the past, I, I'm, uh, I'm always compelled to use these two images of brains that uh, show a person that's hooked on comfort food compared to a person that's not. You can teach yourself to like anything. But if you teach yourself the easy route, which is simple carbs and, and, and processed foods and all that, your brain's going to love it and crave it, love it and crave it. It's an addiction. And if you can teach yourself to, like for me, I'm just lucky. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in this Mediterranean type family and I had salads was part of my life. Sometimes I like to eat two salads a day. I just, I just crave it. Well, how did I crave it? I just learned to crave it early on. So you learn to like foods that are actually good for you. Some people say, no, that's food that I don't like. Well, it doesn't mean you can't learn to like healthy foods. And then finally, who likes bad sleep? Nobody likes bad sleep. You're sluggish through that your day and everything else. Isn't it nicer to wake up a little bit more charged up and ready to face the day and everything else and not wake up in the middle of the night. Um, and so learning how to get good sleep uh, by not taking the easy route can actually result in you desiring to learn how to get better sleep the following night, so to speak. And so in the, in the book, I try to come up with some uh, the standards for sleep hygiene. And so basically what I'm talking about is making your, your daily behavior conform to building in the seeds. Don't say I got one down, that everything should be fine. No, you need all five. <laughs> and you can learn to love to cultivate all five. Yeah, feeling good, feeling good feels good. <laughs> and I, exactly. Why would you want to feel good? <laughs> I want to feel good. I, d I just know I had so many years of being sleep deprived that when I started to be able to get regular sleep again, it, it was just like, wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I like to go to bed around 930. I start to look forward to going to bed. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Now I'm a whole lot older than you, but the reality is as you get older, it's harder to maintain those very important stages of sleep. And so me, as opposed to, let's say you, I have to work harder at it. So that means what you mentioned, you go to, uh, uh, to bed at 9.30. You got to hold that for Saturday and Sunday too, because it turns out that your schedule is wiring your brain. So a, a good example is a lot of people uh, say, oh, on the weekend, I want to I want to sleep in because I've been waking up at 6.10 every morning to get off to work. And then you don't set your alarm on Saturday and Sunday. And all of a sudden you look at the clock and, oh my God, it's 6.10. I want to go back to sleep. Your brain wired to like that pattern. So don't get off that pattern. When you sleep too late on Saturday and Sunday, you screw up Monday. And so having that pattern every day, say the sleep uh, um, researchers, um, is critically important. In fact, let me use a, an example uh, you made reference to earlier that I learned from somebody that came out and gave a talk 
at my system from Harvard. And he was the one that suggested if you exercise in the three to six hour window before you go to sleep, um, uh, it helps with body uh, temperature and a number of other factors too. It's a de-stressor and everything else. But we do know that body temperature at night is critical. You want it to be cool. And being cool helps you get through and into those deeper sleeps. We call it slow wave sleep and, and so on. And it's really the REM sleep, you know, the rapid eye movement sleep that's really packed more in the later part of your, your sleep cycle. And so do you really need to get that deep sleep. Uh, and body cooling is really a major part of it. So fascinating. So fascinating. Um, I've kept you a long time, so I'm just aware of time, but I just wanted to say something about that in the book too, you do break down the process of how you build, how you move through this process of something being difficult in the beginning, you know, taking effort, and then you have to stick with it until it becomes effortless and and I think what I'm hearing from you too is that then when you get something going, really try to stick with it, you know, don't mess with it so that it, it stays the same. And I know that has to do with, you know, just firing up the same neurons over and over again, make it just easier for, for your brain. And then, then for you to behave in a certain way, um, this is just all also exciting. Um, before I let you go though, I just, I just wanted to get I'm just curious what your take is on, like, do you see, well, like, what do you think is going to be next to sort of further develop? Like, do you feel like there's something that we're maybe a little bit on the verge of, or like, we're just really getting into that? I mean, I wonder if it's the sort of compassion and kindness and that thing, but I mean, I can just think of so many things. I'm just kind of curious what you think might be coming next, what we might be on the verge of. Well, I mentioned earlier that I'm not a reductionist. Uh, and so well, what's the opposite of that? Well, we used to, when, when we were younger, use this word holism and, and all that and mind body, but we didn't know as much how they all work together. And so I'm fascinated with, and I think this is the cutting edge, is how all these levels, including what you mentioned earlier, how you can practice uh, gratitude in the morning, how that has an effect on your brain, which has an effect on your immune system, which has an effect on your metabolism and vice versa. So there's a bottom up, top down, side to side, how all these systems work together. And so I'm fascinated with uh, this and have been for maybe 30 years or so, uh, what we call not only systems theory, but also complexity theory. Here I am in Santa Fe and one of the centers of complexity theories here. What is that all about? How, uh, uh, you know, there's this old cliche that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Well, that's pretty fascinating. You know, the, you could say that, but I want to know how. And we call that emergence. So what the heck is the mind? And so I'm fascinated with, and, and I always, that's how I got into psychology. What the heck is it? It's not like one thing. You know, and I, I know that in various medica meditation practices, we use the word mind, mindfulness, or, or whatever, or mind, his mind is this and that. And so it's really the interaction of multiple states of mind that are also dependent upon all these systems I was describing earlier, because I'm not a reductionist, these states of mind can actually have, you could say, some downward causation, I don't mean you can fly or something like that, but 
what the heck is the placebo effect, for example? How is it that if I think that I'm taking this kind of pill that make this, you know, make me less anxious, uh, I'm going to get less anxious simply because I think the pill is going to make me less anxious. I'm not saying all medications are placebos. I'm, don't get me wrong. However, in the pharmacology world, it all the research has always been to, to factor out the placebo effect. Well, I don't want to factor it out completely because the placebo effect is a good thing. I want to make, I want to believe that the things that I'm doing are positive, uh, that result in a positive thing. Sometimes, you know, you can eat a bunch of junk and not result in a positive thing. <laughs> but, but when you think in terms of gratitude, forgiveness, and compassion, we already know they're good things because they're attitudes about being positive and engaged in life. That is not a placebo, but there is some of that in there. I don't want to take it away because your mind, which is our states of mind, have multiple effects on your body. You are your body, but you can't reduce a thought to one neuron or one particular firing pattern, whatever. It's an emergence. So I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent here, but what I'm fascinated with is how all these interactions make something greater than each one of those individually. All right. So I thought that was my last question. I just have one more, one more, and then I really will let you go. So what, what are you, you were saying epigenetics or genetics in general was a, a push for you to study. What are you studying now? Uh, well, I'm, um, I'm working on a book that doesn't have a publisher yet, but I'm, I'm looking for it, is how uh, you can orchestrate energy to create better states of uh, and so the chapter two in this book uh, is really an effort to expand into a larger book. Uh, but the last chapter is what's going to be put in this book, but they didn't have room uh, because they said you're over your page limit. So that whole chapter, you can um, do something else with, and which was about mindfulness, but um, Prayer. I think we lose a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, in let's just say there's a demographically in some countries, uh, there's a lot of people that are afraid of that term. Maybe they're fundamentalist Christians or fundamentalist Muslims and all that. No, prayer for presence is the same thing. Why not? And there are many Christian peripheral presence practitioners, let's say. Um, and so I I want to make sense of how all those practices, including self-hypnosis, including relaxation techniques, they're all very similar. They're not like a, a whole bunch of different kinds of things that you've got to adopt a particular religion for. Uh, and so I want to put it in this larger picture. That's what I think is the sort of the cutting edge to make what we work on, you and I, Elizabeth, work on to make accessible to, to a broader base. That's going to be so, so powerful. Yeah, I really resonate with that. Just the, the power of belief and attitude that makes a big difference because, right, without it, we really don't, it's hard to motivate ourselves to do the things we, we need to do. Oh, I'm excited. So maybe we'll talk again when you get oh, back. Oh, I'd love to. I have enjoyed the conversation with you today. That would be great. Thank you so much for being here today. And I can't wait for your next book. 
Well, thank you. And I hope to talk to you again someday. And, and I wish you the best. And, and I'm really uh, impressed with what you're doing. I, I think that getting out there and interviewing people and everything, it's, it's, it, for me, it's a fascinating thing. I love to interview and talk to people that are working on stuff I don't know anything about. But you know a lot about what we've been talking about. It's, it's my, my venture into the continuing to learn. <laughs> Great.